This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm very excited to host the podcast for American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology, uh, 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 along with the uh, RCMB Assembly at the ATS. So our guest for today is Dr. David Dean. He's a full professor at University of Rochester in the Department of Pediatrics and Biomedical Engineering. Uh, David's a well-known name in uh, gene delivery approaches using electroporation and uh, in disease models related to acute lung injury. So, uh, David, uh, we would love to have... Uh, to learn your experiences in both in, in science and as a career as a whole and uh, uh, and, sh- and learn from your wisdom. So uh, 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 you could start by uh, sharing some of your career progression and also the work done by, in your, uh, by your lab. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Um, so my training uh, is, is uh, in microbiology. Uh, I, I studied bacteria as a graduate student and went on to look at viral assembly as a postdoc. And I was very interested in how molecules move across membranes, uh, be it sugar molecules, uh, transport into bacteria and in viruses, how viruses move into the nucleus and how they get into cells. I got my first faculty position at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, uh, and I went there to uh, uh, study viral assembly of a DNA tumor virus called SV40. Um, and uh, I was there for several months setting up my lab and looking at protein-DNA interactions and, and doing uh, classic viral assembly experiments when I went to a, a keystone meeting on nuclear structure and uh, was really struck by the, the beauty of, of experiments that people were doing to look at um, how DNA, tra- or not how DNA trafficked, but how proteins trafficked into the nucleus, how the nuclear structure was set up, how different genes resided in different areas of the nucleus. And I went back to the lab and uh, was, was energized by this meeting uh, and started doing some what I thought were basic experiments to look at uh, how DNA moved around the cell. Uh, I injected the, the SV40 genome into the cytoplasm of cells and began to look at nuclear import. And uh, sort of accidentally made a finding that uh, DNA gets into the nucleus of a non-dividing cell in a sequence-specific manner. And uh, that really started a, a career uh, where I changed uh, focus and instead of looking at viral assembly, uh, looked at mechanisms of gene delivery, uh, looked at intracellular trafficking of, of plasmids uh, and RNAs, uh, nuclear import, cytoskeletal movement, subnuclear structure, uh, and then from there, uh, started to move on to applying this to, uh, to whole uh, animal models uh, and asking very simple questions as to uh, how DNA um, delivery can be improved. Um, we, uh, from, from University of South Alabama, I moved to uh, Northwestern University to the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine there uh, at the invitation of Yasha Schneider uh, and, uh, and had a, a wonderful uh, time uh, applying our findings to the lung. Uh, we had uh, developed uh, some gene delivery strategies to the vasculature using electric fields, using electroporation in, in whole animals. Uh, and uh, as I said, we had done this in the vasculature. Uh, and uh, when we moved to Yasha's uh, uh, division, uh, we started applying this to the lung uh, and found that it was, was highly effective. 
and uh, spent a lot of time there looking at um, using uh, the techniques we had developed to improve gene delivery uh, to treatment of acute lung injury. Uh, there was a large emphasis on the sodium potassium ATPase, uh, and uh, we started working on that, uh, delivering that uh, using electroporation. We also started looking at the effects of, of uh, mechanical stress on cells uh, and how that affected the gene delivery process and gene delivery in, in the lung as well. Um, from there, uh, after about seven years with Yasha's group, uh, we uh, had the opportunity to uh, move to the Department of Pediatrics uh, at the University of Rochester, which has a very long and vibrant lung group. Uh, and so we've been here for about the past 10 years. Uh, we've continued our studies on uh, both um, sort of very basic mechanisms of uh, gene delivery uh, and also applied uh, studies in uh, developing our electroporation mediated delivery for acute lung injury and ARDS. Um, over the past uh, uh, the 10 years since we've been here, we've developed a very strong collaboration with Gary Neiman at uh, Upstate uh, Medical Center in Syracuse. Uh, and Gary has a wonderful uh, preclinical model for ARDS where he uses a, a two-hit sepsis and ischemia reperfusion model of uh, uh, ARDS in pigs. Uh, so we've uh, used this model uh, to further our studies on electroporation-mediated gene delivery uh, of the sodium-potassium ATPase uh, in a large animal preclinical model with uh, hopes of uh, uh, moving to patients. So uh, I'm curious, your background was in, in microbiology and uh, to some extent virology. So uh, I would have guessed uh, the uh, the obvious choice would have been using viral vectors, but I think you're uh, one of the early adapters, rather pioneers in using electroporation for for gene delivery. So uh, why why a non-viral approach? In while your own background was uh, in viruses, is it something that uh, is there any? Uh, what were the specific reasons why you moved away from using viral vectors? So I started doing gene delivery studies in uh, the early 90s, um, sort of transitioning from viral assembly to uh, um, gene therapy. And uh, this was about the time that uh, a very significant event happened, which was the uh, adenovirus-induced uh, death of a patient at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, gene therapy, I think, really... Uh, had sort of come to the forefront with the discovery of the, the gene and mutations for the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator in the late 1980s. Uh, and there was a huge push to try to use that information to deliver genes to patients. There was a discovery of a number of other uh, molecular defects in genes. And, uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, the field moved perhaps a little too quickly. And uh, in, in 1995, there as I said, a death of a patient due to... Uh, uh, widespread inflammation uh, to uh, to the delivered virus. I think at that point, most people realized that no matter how uh, gutted or first, second, third, fourth generation or, or we make viruses, no matter how, quote, safe, unquote, they are, or uh, uh, how they lack inflammatory uh, sequences or, or proteins, uh, they, they still induce a little bit of inflammation. They can still uh, cause problems. Um, and I think based on that, we look to plasmids as being extremely safe. Um, 
much safer than any viral uh, counterpart. And I think that also led to a lot of our studies on, on plasmid uh, intracellular trafficking and electroporation-mediated delivery, uh, that they were the safe alternative. And while they weren't nearly as effective as viruses uh, at the beginning, I think the combination of new techniques uh, of either trafficking or electroporation especially uh, really makes them um, very efficient for gene delivery. So the, the reason we got into it was, was one of safety. I think that was primarily it. Uh, uh, safety for gene delivery. And if we're ever going to, to treat any disease, you want it to be safe first and foremost. Great. Uh, that's, that was very insightful. And I'm sure uh, uh, it drove quite a few people away from gene therapy at that point. But I think uh, uh, even though like it was uh, away from your, uh, your own training, what were the challenges for you to be uh, adapting something there was more of a biomedical engineering approach to gene delivery. That was, uh, and then, and also uh, you, you mentioned about the safety, David. And uh, can you compare and contrast based on the current day's technology, how uh, the, the safety profile of electroporation compares with that of the, the uh, especially the viral ones and any other uh, gene delivery approaches that you think are comparable? Um, yeah, so I think... So the one great thing about viruses is that they've had millions of years to figure out how to infect you uh, and animals, and they are really good at delivering genes and, uh, and giving you high level of expression. And I think for anybody in the laboratory, you want the highest level of expression you can get. So on the one hand, it's very hard to go away from a system like that uh, uh, to, to use anything else. Uh, in, in terms of safety, I think electroporation um, sort of has a bad rap. You know, we hear the term electro anything, and the first word that comes to mind is electrocution, and, uh, and that's bad. Uh, I think we think of defibrillation in, in, in terms of applying it to the chest and especially the lungs or the heart. Um, and so all of these things make, make people very worried. Um, however, we've spent a lot of time looking at the safety of electroporation. Um, now, I if you, there are a number of uh, uh, clinical trials underway, phase two, phase three trials for the use of electroporation uh, in skin uh, uh, to treat things like melanoma. Uh, there are uh, uh, phase two and three trials underway for using electroporation of skeletal muscle. Uh, again, I think that's seen as, as relatively safe. And, and when I say it's seen as safe, that's the perception that it's safe. Uh, the data shows that it's entirely safe, but the perception that it's safe, if you uh, apply an electric field to a muscle on your leg, you're not really worried about uh, uh, having heart arrhythmias. Um, I think it's, uh, so safety in the lung, so the way we do gene delivery in the lung is to do a transthoracic delivery. We uh, uh, deliver DNA uh, either by intubation or aspiration uh, to the lungs of either small or large animals, uh, and then apply a field across the chest with uh, de pliable uh, defibrillator paddles uh, or pads uh, to deliver our field. Um, we've shown uh, up until uh, in 50 kilogram pigs uh, that are either healthy or septic uh, that this is extremely safe. Uh, it generates less than four joules of energy. It uses different waveforms than you use for uh, defibrillation. Uh, we have seen no uh, uh, fibrillation induced at, at these optimal field strengths that we use, uh, and, and we haven't had mortality at those fields. Uh, so it, it's very safe. 
Um, it uses much less energy than, than you'd use for defibrillation. Uh, in terms of inflammation, if we look uh, very quickly after transthoracic electroporation, uh, we don't see any damage to the lungs. We see a slight reddening of the skin like you'd get in a minor sunburn, uh, but that dissipates over the course of a day. Uh, and uh, if you look at the animal uh, about a week later and you send the skin under the electrodes to a pathologist, they can detect no damage. Um, so we, we see when we assay cytokines and chemokines in the BAL or in serum uh, at different time points after electroporation of the lungs uh, from uh, half an hour up to, uh, to two days or seven days, uh, we don't see any significant differences in, in any of the mediators. Uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, we look histologically, it, it looks safe. Uh, and so it gets down to that, you know, if it walks and talks and squeaks like a duck, you know, probably it is. Uh, so so, we, so we, we think we're looking at all the measures. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so I think it's an extremely safe and, and really in diseases of inflammation, you know, if you're talking about treating ARDS, um, the last thing you want to do is, is induce more. Uh, and so we think this is a, a really a good technique to use for, for such diseases. You know, asthma would be another one. You know, many, many lung diseases fall into this category. That's very convincing for me. And then having dabbled a little bit, uh, 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 I'm not surprised by the, uh, the, the, the skepticism that borders on cynicism. Uh, and then, uh, and on the other side, like, Wherever people are concerned about the safety, do they have any specific questions that they're encouraging you to answer, either from the study sections or, or from the reviewer committees or other foundations? So do you see any specific questions or rather than it's just an emotional uh, response to the, the whole process itself? I think for the most part, it gets down to the emotional response. You know, when we think about putting an electric field across the chest, uh, it makes people nervous. Um, I've had a number of, of people on, uh, who are on study section, uh, brilliant, very good scientists, clinicians, all sorts of people. Uh, when they hear about our results, we get two responses and many times from the same people. Uh, one is, wow, I'd like to get my gene into the, the lung. Can you help me? Uh, and, uh, the second one is, yeah, well, I'd like to get my gene into the lung and that's great. In my mouse studies, this will never work in humans because humans are big. And if you apply a field across the chest, that definitely is going to induce damage or, or death. So, you know, it gets, I think it really is a question of perception and emotional response. Um, so this is one of the things that we've worked very hard to try to, to get a lot of data, uh, to show that it is safe. Um, and, and that has driven a lot of our studies. You, you mentioned about about the, the perception. So uh, uh, for perception, it's very hard. For a, a, an actual solid question, I think you can provide data that convinces. But I think for an emotional response, I'm not sure what would be an appropriate thing. But I think, are there any other evidences that uh, maybe uh, beyond lungs or beyond United States, are there any evidence that other countries or other groups, disease groups, have actually successfully adapted this and then have taken all the way to the clinic? Uh, so in other organs, definitely. Right now in Europe, the uh, clinical standard of care for treating a number of tumors is to use electrochemotherapy. Uh, uh, and that uses electroporation not to deliver genes, but to deliver chemotherapeutic agents that are impermeable to the cell, such as bleomycin. Um, it works great. They use it for prostate cancer. They use it for breast cancer. Uh, and it is uh, clinically accepted and a standard of care. 
when you get to uh, the chest, uh, there are some very nice, um, hopefully soon to be published studies coming out of a, a group in, in uh, Ireland uh, that is doing what's called irreversible electroporation. So that's uh, using field strengths that are much higher. Uh, and what they do is they don't uh, produce gene delivery, they rather ablate tissue. So it's a way to kill cells, but with, with really high energy. And people have used this to treat lung tumors in patients uh, and had clinical responses. So in that case, it's not using electroporation per se like we do, but if you use even higher field strengths, you can ablate uh, uh, tumors in the lung uh, in human patients uh, and and they survive. Now you need to apply your field differently. Uh, obviously, you're not applying it across the chest like we do. They're doing it in a more focal uh, manner, uh, but it is safe in humans. Um, so I, I think it, it's just a matter of time um, before before we proceed to humans, uh, e even in the case of transthoracic electroporation. You know, we've also tried other things to make it a little more amenable. Um, we, we've developed a bronchoscope-based electrode uh, where we can deliver a, a field either to a, a small area or to one lobe of the lung only using a bronchoscope as an internal electrode and a pad on the surface uh, um, in the hopes of that may be perceived as, as safer. It's highly effective, just as is transthoracic, um, but it could be used uh, in certain circumstances as well. I think the selectivity is like really attractive, especially from a laboratory standpoint, if you could actually have a gene delivered to one lung and then the other one, other lung is used as a control and then showing the, the benefits and then keeping the safety profile same, I think would be very powerful. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to change tracks a little here, David. And so, uh, so from a microbiologist to a lung biologist and then working with uh, an uh, uh, a, a biomedical engineering approach. What was your uh, support network in a, in a sense that uh, when you're beginning to dabble in these newer areas, how was the community around you was critical in, in your success and how would you engage the, the collaborators to, to develop a successful uh, team effort towards this? Right. So my training, as you say, is primarily in, in, in very basic science uh, throughout graduate school. And, and uh, as a postdoc, I had very limited uh, use of animals and didn't use any in graduate school. And I made some antibodies in rabbits when I was a postdoc, um, but hadn't used animal models. Um, when it got to a point where we wanted to move into animals, uh, I, I looked around and uh, was very fortunate to have a, a friendship with a, a physiologist at the University of South Alabama, uh, not just a physiologist, a, a man by the name of Aubrey Taylor, uh, who's familiar to very many people uh, looking at uh, oxygen and gas exchange in the lung. Uh, and he, he was wonderful. Uh, he and a, another person, Joey Benoit, in his department, uh, helped me and uh, were very good at facilitating our entry in, into animals. And I think sort of taking the old school physiologist's approach of not being afraid to try anything. Uh, and, uh, and I think that was very valuable. And so uh, uh, really, uh, with their support and their knowledge, uh, they, they gave us what we needed to, to move into animals. Um, I think we had extremely good collaborators when we moved to Northwestern as well. Uh, Yasha Schneider uh, did an outstanding job of, of bringing together a great group of people uh, with a variety of, of uh, uh, expertise 
and uh, and both in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and uh, in departments throughout the university. So there I, I worked a lot with a biomedical engineer, uh, Matt Glucksberg, uh, who again helped us uh, design electrodes and, uh, and different devices. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I joke with with people in the lab that perhaps the reason we made so much success is that uh, we were rather ignorant uh, of what the failures could be. Um, you know, many people say, my goodness, I never even try of doing electroporation to a whole organ or to uh, the lung across the chest or to the heart or whatever. And, and I think perhaps I didn't know enough uh, to be worried about that and, and actually try. Uh, and I think uh, uh, trying these things um, you know, the, the, the successes came and, uh, and I had a good support network around me, uh, to really push me forward. Was being unaware of the pitfalls, was it an educated naivety or, uh, or was it, was it, was just a, a, a functional strategy in your opinion? Ah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I say naivety, I, we, just because something hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't. And so I think I realized that that this should be uh, possible and these things could be done. Uh, and it was just trying them. Uh, I, I think a lot of times also uh, not wanting to listen to people tell me it couldn't be done. Um, you know, if you believe in something and you think it's going to work, uh, you, you need to stand by what you believe in and try. So um, I don't know if that really answers it, but... I think that that beautifully answers because I think uh, to some extent taking no for an answer when there is no evidence and then uh, and also being uh, not compromising until you actually try something and then be really sure I think says a lot to for the approach for the uh, for the uh, the risky approaches or at least perceived risky approaches that you're taking but I think from what I could gather at every stage uh, I think right from the inception, the, the the reason you chose to use electrical fields was itself to to improve safety, not because you wanted to try something innovative for the sake of it, rather than trying to find the best possible. I think that conviction to to pursue something, even though it was like far from your for your own training, says a lot. Uh, so is that trait really important for uh, for someone like you to to be able to persist with the technology that still raises the eyebrows even today in terms of continuing to be successfully gather resources from different funding agencies and largely NIH and uh, and still be able to publish high impact papers. So how much of that do you attribute to your own uh, dogged determination and perseverance and, and the uh, and, uh, circumstances beyond your, yourself? You know, I, I think a lot. I, I think... You know, I, I often tell students that, uh, and other people outside of science, that you know the perception is that scientists are uh, uh, very open-minded people that are uh, very willing to accept anything new. Uh, and in practice, as we all know, because we've all submitted grants and we've all, uh, uh, you know, had various uh, uh, words to say when we read our summary statements, uh, it's not always the case that, that scientists aren't always the most open-minded people. Uh, and so it does take uh, a level of persistence and perseverance to get uh, what you see as good ideas or, or good techniques or good hypotheses across. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it takes a lot of, um, it really does take a lot of perseverance. 
you know, there's an old story about uh, Peter Mitchell who discovered and came up with the chemiosmotic theory and hypothesis, and and now that we take to be uh, the the central uh, dogma for energy in in the cell and in life, uh, and nobody believed him initially. Nobody believed that uh, chemical gradients and electrical gradients uh, could be generated and, and were synonymous in the cell. And he even had a nervous breakdown. Uh, and yet he persevered, and in time, it's now accepted by everybody. So I, I think these things, and not to equate myself with Peter Mitchell by any means, uh, but I think perseverance is, is a big thing, and, and you need to be uh, persistent. So follow-up question for that is, uh, so how do you gather grit? How do you, how do you practice grit in a way? And how much of it is to the support system that's around you? Uh, I think the support system uh, is extremely important. Um, I, I've been very fortunate to have wonderful colleagues at all of the institutions I've been at, um, a very good leadership as well. Um, you know, going back to, to the University of South Alabama, my chairman, uh, here was a man who hired a, a virologist uh, to uh, do virology and to teach virology to medical students and graduate students. And uh, within six months, he got somebody who wasn't uh, uh, using any viruses any longer. Uh, and yet he was supportive of that. He was supportive of where the science was going. Uh, in Chicago at Northwestern, Yasha Schneider uh, was always very supportive, uh, especially in the light of people telling me that, well, your results are great, but it's never going to be translated to humans. Uh, and, and he was very good at uh, uh, telling me uh, to persevere and putting uh, groups of people together um, that made them realize that, that uh, you know, reviewers of grants are not always the ones with the perfect answers, unless, of course, they fund your grant and then they're brilliant. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and I think here at the University of Rochester, again, I've, I've had uh, a good leadership from my division chief, Bill Maniscalco, for years, and uh, the, the chair of pediatrics, Nina Shore, who just stepped down, uh, who uh, have been very supportive uh, along the way. And every time we get, I don't want to say knocked down, but get uh, uh, confronted with, with uh, comments uh, that uh, this won't move forward or there are problems with this or that, uh, you know, back us, back our laboratory, back me, uh, and, uh, and and realize that uh, the data should speak for itself, uh, and they've been very valuable in, uh, in supporting us. So, uh, so that, that's really f great and, uh, and fortunate in a way as well, because I think many times people tend to see that there's a lot of... Uh, it takes a lot of energy to convince people around you, study sections and reviewers, because I think all the energies are devoted towards um, that rather than trying to advance what they really believe in. And uh, that could be, to some extent, uh, expression of frustration. But how did you, uh, was it a conscious effort to educate people around you about your approaches and your pitfalls and especially your chair and people in position who could actually uh, be really important for continuing to pursue a, a challenging project, a challenging area. So uh, what was your approach towards your leaders? Because I think all of them seem to be really great. So uh, there's something that you must be doing that really convinces them that uh, if David's pursuing it this way, there has to be some, some value, some potential in it. So uh, how did you educate 
and generate support from all these chairs. Is there any any uh, any particular wisdom that you could share? Uh, I I wish there were something simple I could say. Um, I you know I don't know. I I, I maybe it's a combination of of personality and and uh, and perseverance and being in the right place at the right time, meeting the right people. Um, I, I, I wish I had a good answer. And, uh, I, I think we've been fortunate to, uh, um, you know, to meet the right people, uh, and to try to convince them one by one. Uh, and, and hopefully it, it spreads from there. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can come up with a good answer for that. Sorry. No, 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 no. I think you you said, like you said, I think it's a, it's a, there is no simple answer to achieving success in some of these things. I, I take that back. I remember once I, I did uh, some consulting for a biotech company and uh, I gave a talk uh, and uh, talking about gene delivery. And at the end of the talk, people asked me for uh, about my opinions on a number of different techniques and and uh, approaches that people use to do gene delivery. And in, in, this was primarily in cell culture. And uh, at the end, I was talking to the president of the company, and he said, you know, you're the first person uh, who's come and given a talk here uh, that didn't spend all their time and effort trying to sell us your technology. And you actually talked about the strengths of other approaches and other uh, uh, methodologies, uh, but also the limitations of other methodologies. And uh, and he said that was that was really refreshing. So I, I guess maybe that's one thing to to pay attention to. You know, oftentimes we get so focused on promoting our own ideas, um, when when really we need to take a balanced balanced look. You know, I think electroporation is fantastic, and I think it can be used for some uh, some uh, applications, uh, but definitely not every application. You know, there is going to be a place in in the realm of gene therapy for viral gene delivery. If I want to, uh, to to treat cancer, I think a virus is probably the way to go because uh, you get added benefits of generating inflammatory and immune responses. And if I want to kill a tumor, that's what you want. Um, but there are other cases where uh, viruses are not going to be the answer. Perhaps it's going to be uh, a dye block copolymers and nanoparticle approaches. Uh, and in fact, we're investigating those for delivery of our uh, siRNA in the lung. Um, so I think it's being willing to try a variety of things, not only pushing your agenda forward, uh, that maybe makes people listen a little more uh, uh, to what you have to say. Because I think that's a great advice. So I think uh, being impartial about your own work actually uh, adds credibility to uh, the pursuit while there's a lot of cynicism. So, uh, so you mentioned about... Uh, working with the industry. So uh, since this is such an application-oriented technology and has such huge potential for, for uh, clinical benefits, so, uh, so do you think it would have been much more faster in terms of uh, less, less roadblocks if you were at an industry? rather than at an academic medical center? I know it's a very hypothetical question, but I think uh, I think nowadays the, the differences between academic pursuits and industry pursuits are narrowing. But I think uh, we're considering in the last 20, 25 years of your career, do you think an industry sort of approach would have been much better? Or do you think the democratic, slow uh, process of academic research is much more important to really arrive at the right answers, even at the, at the cost of speed uh yes yeah. so i think academic uh, uh the academic approach is probably the better approach for 
um, in that you do get to spend time and, and you do uh, are not so concerned with uh, uh, commercialization uh, of your product so that you can study all aspects of it. However, we all are all are tied to grants, so you can say we're all commercial entities uh, trying to, to, to get money from NIH. You know, I, I have a very good friend, Richard Heller, who was the person who first did in vivo electroporation. He did it in the liver and then moved to the skin. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, has worked with companies for years. He's, a, an academic, he's formed companies, he works with companies. And I have heard him complain as much about the, uh, industrial approach to pushing his science forward as the academic approach. I think perhaps one of the things that's limited, uh, more rapid translation of our work uh, is perhaps the, the target organ itself. Um, you know, the lungs aren't the easiest thing to uh, uh, convince people of, of uh, passing electric fields through. Uh, I think had we focused on uh, skin or a skeletal muscle, uh, we'd probably be much further along. And in fact, when you look at where the uh, large-scale clinical trials are occurring, it is in skin and it is in skeletal muscle. Uh, so organs that are perceived as, as safer uh, or less uh, damaging. But uh, I think lungs beautifully in its own right, because it's one of those few organs which has access to the environment and at the same time uh, has caused some of the most critical illnesses. So I think I'm, I'm glad you did not move away from the lungs, David. So uh, it's important. So, uh, so the other thing is in the, uh, in the age of CRISPR and gene editing uh, era, so how do you think uh, electroporation could add value to it? And, and the other question I have is, uh, uh, part B of the same question is, now everybody has CRISPR constructs, uh, uh, rather has access to them, and much of the use is still in cells. Uh, but, uh, but do you think individual labs without an extensive expertise in delivery approaches could actually use electroporation and combine that with CRISPRs to really add a, a much more strong uh, controls to the experiments and, and, and a, 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 an improved level of uh, research quality, especially in the respiratory arena. Yes, ab absolutely. So, you know, electroporation, so while we've used it to deliver plasmids, to overexpress uh, gene products, um, we've also used it to deliver siRNA in the lungs. We've used it to deliver, in collaboration, uh, guide RNAs to the lung for CRISPR use. Uh, we've used it to deliver Cre-recombinase plasmid to floxed animals uh, to create knockouts. Uh, so, you know, I think there are as many applications as you can think of. Uh, and I think the nice thing about electroporation is, is that it is safe. It is easy. It is exceedingly inexpensive. Uh, uh, all you need is, is a pulse generator, which can be had for uh, four dollars to $6,000, uh, and an animal. Uh, you know, if you're putting in DNA or RNA, there's nothing special about it. You just have to have purified uh, uh, constructs. Uh, and you put it in a little saline and you're done. So it's, uh, I think if you've got the imagination and the, the time, uh, I think it can be uh, used for anything. And I think especially in CRISPR technology, uh, it could be very, very valuable uh, for in vivo applications. So that's, that's, that's really promising. So do you think uh, uh, in terms of training, so obviously, everybody thinks that once it's a technology, you need somebody. There is there has to be an extensive training period before adapting a new technology. Do you think that's that's appropriate for electroporation, or do you think individuals can actually 
review your your work and then there's uh, other literature and then actually be able to adapt considering that the cost is pretty small compared to everything else that we do so in the early days that we developed this technique uh we had problems with uh, fluid delivery so we were either doing cut downs or endotracheal tubes in in mice uh, to, to deliver uh, DNA and fluid. And uh, when this went to, when other labs tried this, uh, so deliver the fluid and then apply the electric field, uh, there were deaths associated in mice. And, and it was primarily due with fluid delivery. Over the last, well, I'd say 10 years, uh, we came up with a way to do aspiration-mediated delivery. Uh, and now we have no problems with uh, uh, delivering DNA. And aspiration is a simple technique. Uh, that, that people use for either sensitizing animals for asthma studies or, or uh, for delivery of LPS or whatever. So I think the combination of that making it an easier approach uh, and then applying the electrodes to either side of the chest is is really simple. So uh, I, I think anybody that reads uh, more recent papers uh, it maybe uh, it can apply it directly if there's a problem. I have people all the time sending me emails or giving me calls, uh, and, and it's something that can be applied uh, by, by really anybody. We have people coming into the lab, uh, either from labs around, around the world uh, or uh, pulmonary or neonatology fellows who've never worked in laboratories before, uh, and they catch on very quickly. So I think it's a very easy uh, approach, easy technique to learn. That's wonderful. So, uh, uh, one related question when you mentioned about the pulmonary is, uh, obvious choice would have been a, a monogenic disorder like cystic fibrosis or something like that. So uh, I was surprised that when you moved into animal models, you chose one of the, the, the most difficult uh, diseases. So do you think uh, uh, electroporation hasn't been... Uh, leveraged adequately for other diseases where the, the pathology is, uh, the etiology is well known and the pathology is very easy to track rather than something more complex like ARDS? Um, I think a monogenetic disorder probably would have been a better uh, choice uh, for faster movement, more acceptance, uh, perhaps from, from different people. Uh, you know, the reason we chose ARDS was was really because of our move to uh, Northwestern and Yasha Schneider's uh, ability to convince us that this was a really important disease, which he is right. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, he did a great job of getting us involved in that. So I credit him with that and, and I thank him greatly. Um, I, I think um, one of the problems with electroporation uh, is that before people ever think of doing any type of in vivo electroporation, they have experience electroporating cells. And uh, when you electroporate mammalian cells uh, in a cuvette, uh, you get a lot of cell death. And I think people say, oh, well, I've electroporated cells before and they die. And so why on earth would I try that in vivo? So I think we're sort of combating that idea as well. And that has perhaps uh, been why it's slow to be uh, picked up by a number of uh, labs for different diseases such as CFTR or cystic fibrosis uh, or anti alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency or so on. But I think the, uh, the, the, the kind of progress that you guys have made in ARDS speaks that uh, it, it's still trackable and then hopefully uh, uh, it would advance into clinical testing uh, hopefully soon. So, uh, yeah, so, so I had... Uh, these questions about your your career. So since you you had a lot of transitions and uh, 
immense success. Uh, this is a wrong question to ask, but still, I'm going to still ask. So what would be one thing that you would do differently uh, 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 at some point in your career and, and then why? You know, that's a hard thing. And, and, and I don't know that I would do anything differently. Um, every place I've been, I've been surrounded by really supportive people. Uh, I, you know, I'm often, I often think I, I see older faculty uh, who've been at an institution for 30 or 40 years. And I think would I have been better off doing that? And then I look in uh, the places I've been and how much I've gained from each of the, the institutions and the people there. And, and the answer is no, I wouldn't have gained anything. Would I have worked on a, a simpler disease? Uh, no, I don't think so. ARDS, I don't want to say it's a wonderful disease, but it's it's a, 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 such a, a uh, yeah, I hate to use the word beautiful disease, but there, there are so many aspects of it that are just intriguing and uh, a complex and, and that complexity is so exciting. Uh, so no, I wouldn't work on anything else. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate that our lab has both very applied studies de developing gene therapy for ARDS uh, in, in different animal models, uh, as well as very basic cell studies doing uh, mass spectrometry and, and biochemistry and, and uh, uh, a lot of molecular biology. So I, I get the best of all worlds. Um, and, and I really can't think of anything I, I would want to change. But that's really great because I think uh, nothing beats uh, total satisfaction about, about how your career has progressed. So, so the last question I would like to ask you, David, is like, what would you like to see accomplished before you retire in, say, two or three decades? No, I don't like the three-decade thing. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think what I'd really like to see is I, I would like to see gene therapy uh, be successful. Uh, especially in the lung. You know, we have so many diseases that are, are really amenable to gene therapy uh, in the lung. And I would like to see uh, success. You know, in the last year or so, we've seen a couple FDA approvals for, for gene therapies uh, in the eye. And, uh, and, and that's so exciting and is energizing the field of gene delivery and gene therapy. And I would like to see it in the lung. You know, the numbers of patients that would be affected uh, are huge. We have a number of diseases that just really aren't amenable to many other treatments. Would I like to see electroporation be used to treat ARDS? Absolutely. Uh, but if it doesn't come to be, if we can have any other gene therapy developed, uh, that would make me uh, uh, very excited. And, and realizing that you know everybody contributes to, to the success of science uh, and in a small part or a large part, and just to be part of that process. Uh, is very rewarding in itself. Absolutely. So really enjoyed learning your experiences, David. And then hopefully it would help not only uh, many listeners, uh, fellows and junior faculty learn from your experiences and get excited by your passion. So that's, that's the hope. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, it, it's wonderful to learn your work and your approach. So delighted. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>